Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the Aaliyah Review of Books. This is episode 15 of the Aaliyah Review podcast. Today, I interview John Leslie, professor emeritus at the University of Guelph. He is the author of the highly influential book, Universes, published by Rutledge in 1989. Hailed by a recent Aaliyah Review guest, Luke Barnes, as a, quote, tremendously clear exposition and a must-read. Leslie has written a number of other books on cosmology, philosophy, existence, and much else, and also invented a chess variant, which we will explore in further detail towards the end of the discussion. Sit back and enjoy a truly unique, provocative philosophical tour through the cosmos. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. John, your most cited book is probably Universes, published in 1989. How do you think Universes has withstood the test of time? I got interested in the area because I was developing a view that the universe could be explained, its existence and its nature could be explained by some force of value, some god or some abstract force which acts in the way that a benevolent god would. And in my first book on this, which was Value in Existence, I was rather dismissive of the idea that the very fortunate aspects of the universe could be explained by not divine selection, but observational selection. The idea here is that there's hugely many universes, and they have different characteristics, but obviously you'd see a universe whose characteristics were compatible with the development of intelligent life. Well, I luckily then got a research year. I spent it in Oxford's science libraries, and I saw that what I had written was stupid, or at least out of date. And I then developed this book, Universes, where on the one hand, I put out all the evidence which seemed to show that our universe was finely tuned for the development of intelligent life. And I then contrasted the two possible ways of explaining this, the notion that something on the God line had done this, or that we were dealing with the results of a situation in which there's hugely many universes, different characteristics, and we see a universe which has finely tuned characteristics because we couldn't see anything else in any other universe we wouldn't exist. There are interesting reasons for believing in very many universes with differing characteristics, even if you don't go in for this fine-tuning business. But the fact that we do see the fine-tuning is, in my view, particularly strong evidence for the existence of many universes or else for the existence of something worth calling God. John, you represent something called the Platonic view, which features prominently in some of these discussions. Uh, Could you give a brief layman's explanation of what exactly that is? The Platonic theory involves a rather controversial interpretation of what Plato wrote, he wrote that um, the good 
is able to explain the existence of the universe and its nature and throw light on its nature in the same way as the sun can help explain the existence of life on earth and help us show what's going on on earth. Now, I and a long tradition of other people have taken this to mean that there is an ethical need that the universe exists, and this need is by itself creatively effective. I know this is a strange view to many people. In fact, I've heard it dismissed as simply silly. I was sitting at a table with Richard Dawkins, and he said, uh, ethical requiredness explaining the universe? Why not Chanel number fiveness doing this job? <laughs> but I developed arguments that there are interesting parallels between what you'd need to explain the universe and what you need to deal with the idea of goodness. Goodness isn't just something like redness. Goodness is something on the lines of neededness. You can't understand the idea of ideas of good and bad unless you focus on the ideas of what is needed and what is the opposite of what's needed. And there's sufficiently many indications just looking at the concept, the idea of good, that the good is in the right ballpark for explaining the existence of the universe. That's my platonic view. And these days, I think that I and Nicholas Resch of Pittsburgh are probably the two main defenders of that view inside what's known as the analytical philosophy community. Well, speaking of community, could you share just a little bit with us about your relationship with the late John Polkinghorne? Well, I first met John Polkinghorne at a workshop celebrating a centenary of Newton's birth or death, I forget which. <laughs> anyway, and this was at Castel Gandolfo in the Vatican. And there he said he'd come across my work. He later, I sent to him the draft of my book, Universes, which he very kindly read all the way through and was enthusiastic. And his enthusiasm helped persuade Routledge to publish this book. The book, Universes, is possibly best known for its extended use of analogies. Uh, there are several entertaining ones in there, uh, the most famous of which is probably the firing squad analogy. Would you care to share that with us? Referring to my shooting story, where you have a, a large number of people lined up and the firing squad manages to miss all of them, including you yourself. And the question is, why? Well, maybe there's millions of firing squads at work and this is the squad which happens to miss or maybe the people in the firing squad rather like you. That corresponds on the one hand to the multiple universes explanation of the fine tuning which we talked about and the divine selection, God wanted this, God loves humans or God at least loves intelligent life explanation for the situation. I also enjoy the treasure chest analogy where you have three people on a desert island, there is treasure in a chest, 
somebody steals something from the chest and you can either blame person A or person B, the evidence points to either of them because they are both, you're either two suspects and it, uh, it addresses. It increases the probability yeah, that right. A has done it and it increases the probability that B has done it. And right. actually it increases the probability that they may have done it together. Right. And uh, an interesting thing here is that the multiple universes explanation isn't in clear conflict with the God explanation because what God might have done is create multiple universes with different characteristics, possibly just for the fun of watching how even the ones which didn't have life in them developed. And in fact, my own view is that the best take on this situation is that we are all of us inside the mind of God, that the patterns of vastly many universes are inside the mind of God. And many of these universes may well be lifeless, but very well worth thinking about all the same. And God thinks about everything which is worth thinking about. Therefore, life containing universes such as ours and ones which have no life in it. Well, that seems like the perfect segue to jump to Infinite Minds of Philosophical Cosmology and Immortality Defended, published in 2001 and 2007, respectively. Could you talk with us a little bit about your evolution from value and existence, that is 1979, all the way up to Infinite Minds and Immortality Defended? Well, even if you look at value and existence, you'll see towards the end the suggestion that our universe may not be the only universe and that we may be part of a divine mind which thinks about everything worth thinking about. But I wasn't at that stage putting particular stress on that. Now, I think this was a mistake. I think that only if you put stress on that can you really explain what's going on, can you really react successfully to the so-called problem of evil, the problem of why if you have a benevolent God, all these nasty things happen. I think the, the way around the problem of evil is to say that absolutely everything which is worth thinking about is thought about by God. And our universe is one of the things worth thinking about. And it may well be fairly well low on that list. Uh, it could be that it, it just manages to squeeze into the things worth thinking about. Th that, I think, is the strongest defense of the general God view against the problem of evil. And I should have put much more stress on that, and the later book does. Well, turning now to The End of the World, The Science and Ethics of Human Extinction, published in 1996, Obviously, turn on the TV or go to the bookstore today, and you could find all sorts of things. Asteroids, nuclear weapons, zombies, climate change. Many, many ways the world can end. Reflect a little bit on this book, The End of the World. That same conference which I mentioned in the Vatican, I met Frank Tipler, and he introduced me to an argument which he called the Doomsday Argument. It had been developed by Brandon Carter, but not actually at that stage given that name. The doomsday argument is that if you look at two possible 
pictures, one of which has the human race lasting for vastly many years and spreading through the galaxy, and the other, the human race ending fairly soon. On the one picture, our position in total cosmic history is fairly ordinary. On the one picture where the human race goes extinct soon, you and I are in about the 10% class, because since there's been a population explosion, about one in 10 people who've ever lived are alive now. If, however, the human race goes through the galaxy, we wouldn't be in anything like that larger class. We would be perhaps in the one in the thousand, the one in the million, the one in a billion class, exceptionally early humans. And the doomsday argument says that looking at these two possibilities, we should have some tendencies to be more pessimistic, to think that it's more likely that the human race will destroy itself soon than that the human race will manage to spread all the way through its galaxy. Well, when I first heard of this argument, I said, silly. <laughs> and this is the, the, usual, <laughs> the usual reaction. I'm sensing a theme here. Yeah. And in fact, Baden Carter was so used to this reaction that he did very little. But I wrote to him when I'd realized that that itself was a silly reaction, that anybody who is interested in cosmology has to take into account where you're likely to be in space and time, not just where you might be in space and time. And as soon as you start taking into account where you are likely to be in space and time, then you tend to say, our prejudice should be in favor of theories that the human race is going to end soon. I developed in the book large numbers of possible risks which could lead to the extinction of the human race. And I thought that the dangers associated with all these risks should be taken more seriously because of this doomsday argument was in the background. I myself don't think that the doomsday argument develops a particularly pessimistic conclusion until you think it's more likely than not that we'll soon go extinct. I think that as soon as you get into uh, probabilities which are completely open to chance, which haven't got determinism in the background of them, then the doomsday argument can't push your pessimism above sort of 50%, no matter how badly you are impressed by the, the risks. Uh, still, it is very important to look at the risks. And one of the examples you talk a lot about in your book are these high-energy experiments. Would you mind elaborating? A large part of my book is dealing with things like nuclear warfare and the climate crisis, which you mentioned. I think it's quite possible we might even have a runaway greenhouse disaster with temperatures really shooting up so much that humans can't exist on Earth. But I also looked at risks which are very rarely discussed. And one of them is taken seriously by Martin Rees, who is astronomer royal in, in Britain, one of Britain's best-known scientists. 
And he wrote a, a book, Our Final Century. And one of the risks he took very seriously is that as we keep on pushing up accelerators, energies, we might upset the fabric of space. And the idea here is that what we see when we look at the physical world and the various forces, which are physical forces, the various particles, which are essential to physics, such as the neutron and the proton, the electron and so on, we see a, a large number of apparently arbitrary numbers. And one way of explaining how these numbers have been reached is simply to say that as the Big Bang cooled, these numbers took arbitrary values through, so to speak, falling into hollows as various balls rolled downhill, falling into hollows out of which they might be jogged. <laughs> if these numbers were jogged out of these hollows, or if any one of them were jogged out of its hollow, the results would be disastrous because the ball which is in the hollow would continue rolling downhill. And this would mean that uh, the local situation would become energetically favorable. <laughs> and that means that the little bubble in which this occurred, which could be a bubble so small that you couldn't see it with the most powerful microscope, would then immediately expand and destroy the Earth <laughs> and then destroy the galaxy and keep on expanding. Now, I take this very seriously because, as I said, one way you can explain the fine-tuning is to say that this is how things just happen to be in our particular universe, among many universes which have different characteristics, is these different characteristics are due to how, when these universes cooled, how these various balls fell into hollows on the hill. It could well be that a very high intensity push would push one of these balls out of its hollow, and then we get disaster. Now, Martin Rees had pointed out in an early paper that we're safe as long as we don't exceed the energies in our accelerators reached by colliding cosmic rays. And he reckoned that in our past light cone, which means in that area of our past, which could possibly affect us, there have been collisions equal to the impact of rifle bullets hitting one another. You would think, you might well think that it's very hard for any human accelerator to get that sort of energy. But even the accelerators which we have these days have in their particle beams energies equivalent to super fast trains rushing together. And the prospect is that we'd be able to get to the energies not just of colliding rifle bullets, but of colliding small jet aircraft. These might be on the horizon with new types of accelerator. And Martin Rees warned that possibly certain experiments shouldn't be allowed, should be banned. I think that he's rather a voice crying in the wilderness here, 
Uh, well, I want to join him in this voice and point out to people, look, do look very carefully before you build a really, really powerful accelerator, because it might be well destroying. And that would be a pity. It strikes me that Brandon Carter, Frank Tipler, these are names normally associated with the anthropic principle, which is often invoked in conversations about the beginning of the universe, the origin of the universe. And we seem to be following a thread here through the evolution of your work from the beginning of the universe to the end of the world. In addition to Frank Tipler and Brandon Carter, are there other scholars whose work you, you have followed over the years who have influenced you, who, who have impressed you? Well, I've been particularly influenced by John Paul Kinghorn, you mentioned, by Martin Rees, by Brandon Carter, and by Paul Davies, who is fantastically productive of books. He seems to churn out one every year, one every two years, each each one of which is absolutely excellent. I think of him as a top-class scientist. Anyway, these people have influenced me, and... I haven't found that my own views have changed terribly much over the years because, as you said, they they do tie together. It could seem that there's a lot of conflict between talking about the end of the world and disaster looming and so on and talking about goodness as behind the world. But I'd like to mention here that even Leibniz, who thought ours was the best of all possible worlds, wasn't committed to the view that it was getting better and better day by day. The idea that this is the best of all possible worlds is quite compatible with thinking that it started off rather good and it's going downhill and it'll go right right down to become hardly worth having. So there's no real conflict here. Well, we are rapidly coming to the end of our interview. Before we turn to the chess variant that you have invented, I want to ask you one more question about books, and that is, what is your favorite novel? My favorite novel is a book by Friedrich Dürrenmatt called Die Panne, which is available also in English. I think it's called The Breakdown or something like that. And it's a distinctive story of an odd sort it talks about a salesman who undergoes a breakdown is happy to find that a local community of scholars and particularly of legal scholars is willing to welcome him and in return for his food and board and drink and so on he gets to take part in a mock trial they don't know what they're going to try him about, but by their careful questionings, they find out that he's probably committed a murder, and he didn't realize he'd done so. It is a fantastic book, and I love the way that Duramat writes. His sentences go on and on and on and on as long as this one of mine. <laughs> Now, of course, you are perfectly free to like a book just because it's a fun read. But I wonder, given that you are a philosopher, whether there is some kind of deeper meaning that you find in the book. I suppose that the philosophy in the wide sense, philosophy of life going on there, is saying that any, any of us can be led into crimes without even realizing it. And they can be very shocking crimes. <laughs> in this case, the guy, in effect, murders his boss by giving him a very nasty shock. Mm. And it's 
in the background of his mind that he might murder his boss in this way and take over the, the firm and do wonderfully in life. But he hadn't really thought it out until it was brought to his attention. <laughs> well, I, I like to think I'm a fairly decent fellow most of the time, but sometimes I think I've been an absolute lout. <laughs> and I'm glad I'm not uh, part of the mock trial <laughs> in that book. This has been an absolutely fascinating, provocative tour through the things that you have written and the things that you read. As promised, I would like to give you a few moments to expound on this chess variant that you have created, Hostage Chess. Expound away. Well, Hostage Chess is an attempt to bring into Western chess an excellent idea which you find in Japanese chess, which is the dropping rule. In Japanese chess, when you capture your opponent's piece, you put it beside the board, and then at some later time of your choice, you can, instead of a normal move, drop the captured piece onto a vacant square. This leads to a very exciting game, and a very rich game. In fact, Japanese chess shogi could well claim to be the leading chess game of the world, beating Western chess, beating Chinese chess, which is itself very interesting. Unfortunately, if you take this um, rule and you apply it simply to Western chess, you get to a game of brutal violence. You get immense swings when the pieces are captured. Now, in the, the chess variant which I developed, when you capture a piece, you put it in prison, and then you can exchange it for a piece in your opponent's prison, which is of equal or lesser value. So, for example, I could exchange a queen for a mere pawn if I wanted, or for anything more important than a pawn, up to another queen, and drop it back on the board. Sometimes it would be silly to exchange the queen for a pawn because the queen then goes to your opponent who can drop it back on, on you, and that would be disastrous. But of course, if, if the pawn delivers checkmate, that's the end of the game, and you've won. This was an idea which greatly attracted David Pritchard, who'd written the Encyclopedia of Chess Variants. And he, in fact, he quickly put it into his book, uh, Popular Chess Variants, as a chapter. And it has since spread, but not spread as much as I would like. And what I really need is a lot of publicity, such as, as given by your excellent program for the game Hostage Chess. If you want to find out more about it, go to www.hostagechess.com. And you'll find my book on it and also a free computer program, which plays it to a very high standard. It can thrash me. I'll be sure to check it out and encourage all of our listeners to do so as well. John Leslie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for interviewing me. Readers interested in learning more about John Leslie's favorite novel, Diapana by Friedrich Dürrenmatt, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, it was translated into English as A Dangerous Game. His chess variant is Hostage Chess, and may be accessed at www.hostagechess.com. This interview was conducted on August 9th, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the Aaliyah Review of Books. Thank you.
Join us online at www.aleoreview.com. That's www.aleoreview.com.